Well, as we've been going through the book of Acts, we've been tracing the history of the early church. We started with the commissioning of the apostles on the Mount of Olives, and then we saw the birth of the church on the day of Pentecost, as there was that miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit that came upon the believers, and Acts 2.41 told us that 3,000 were added to their number that day. The church continued to grow as Acts 2.47 told us that each day God was adding to those who were being saved. And we saw as the church is growing, so too is the opposition. Satan was trying to stop the growth of the church through the spreading of lies, through persecution. But all it was doing was like pouring water on a grease fire as it spread the gospel further. And Acts 4.4 said that 5,000 more were added to their number. And it continued as Acts 5.14 said, And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. As we turn in our Bible today to Acts chapter 6, we're going to see that the growth is still going. Because Acts 6.1 says the disciples were increasing in number. Now, as this growth is occurring, as, as it continues, there are challenges that come with it, as we're going to see today in Acts, 1, in Acts chapter 6 and verses 1 through 7. And as we're looking at what's happening in Acts, it's some, some of the things that we're going to look at today are challenges we're seeing here at Wayside. Wayside is also a place where God is adding to our number uh, daily. It's, it's a church that is growing it's a church that is at the point of capacity and kind of like this cup that is full and overflowing. That's how we feel. You may be sitting here right now in the 915 service, look around saying, but Roger, I see some empty pews. But if you were to come in here at 11 o'clock, we are actually turning people away at the door in the 11 o'clock service. Now, these are wonderful problems to have, but they're still problems. It's why we refer to them here as happy headaches. Uh, happy headaches are things that are great to have, but if they're not dealt with in the right way, they can become migraines that turn into debilitating and destructive things. As we look at Acts chapter 6 today, I want you to read with me verses 1 through 7. Acts 6, 1 says, Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. But select from among you, brethren, seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of, full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nic Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. The word of, get, the word of God kept spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Now, we've already seen back in Acts chapter 5 how Satan tried to derail the church. You'll recall that there was a couple by the name of Ananias and Sapphira, and Satan sought to corrupt them and uh, have them de deceive the leadership and, and lie to God. And here we see that Satan is once again on the attack from the inside. He tries to create dissension in the church. He tries to divide the different groups that are coming together. Now, along with the issue of dissension, uh, there's also the problem of a distraction. Because what he tries to do, he's been unsuccessful in keeping the Word of God from being preached. But if he can draw the apostles away from the focus on prayer and preaching, then he'll be able to keep the Word from being preached. It's been said before that if Satan can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. Have you ever found that in your own life? If Satan can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. And here we see that's happening. Uh, where he's trying to draw them away into the wrong things. Now, in verse 1, we read that a complaint arose about the care of some of the widows who were in the church. The Greek word that is used here is gongizmos. Now, that kind of sounds like a disease, doesn't it? You ever been struck with gongizmos? And it can be a deadly disease. It's one that is, the word means to grumble, to complain, to murmur. This, uh, the, the murmuring. It's not that we shouldn't ever disagree with something. It's not that we should ever voice a contrary opinion. 
But when we grumble, when we murmur, when we're doing it, uh, what we see here, it's, it's not the way that God has us approach. It's where we talk to someone or uh, we talk to others, maybe our friends, about someone or something we don't like. But you see, what we don't do is go to the person or go to those who are responsible for the decision and talk to them. There's a big difference. If you're seeking a solution and you disagree, it's okay to disagree, but first don't be disagreeable, okay? When you go to the person, go respectfully, but also go to the individual who is in charge of the decision or who can bring about a change. If you simply get among your friends and, and murmur and grumble about it, it's, it's called gossip, it's destructive. And what happens is we draw others in and we poison the well we begin to build our case, and we, we present our side of the story, and, and we conveniently leave out the facts often, don't we? Proverbs eighteen seventeen tells us, whoever pleads his case first is believed right till another comes along and examines him. And what it means is there's, there's a second side to the story, and often there's this inconvenient thing about facts that kind of change the story. And when we grumble or when we murmur, what we're doing is only uh, seeking to destroy. We're not really seeking a solution. And when we murmur, what happens is we often jump, jump to the wrong conclusions because, A, we may lack all the information. Uh, another thing that happens is we've already pre-decided, haven't we? We say, I know exactly why they're doing this. I know what their end game is. I know what their motives or their agenda is without sometimes really knowing what is going on. This is the same word that's found in the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so when you look for words like this in the, what had been originally written in Hebrew, you can see the, the crossover. And a passage that contains this word is Numbers chapter 14 and verses 2 through 4 where it tells us this. It says, all the sons of Israel grumble, there's our word, against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land? To fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it, would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. You recall that what has God has done at this point is he's freed the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. He's taking them through the wilderness to the promised land. And as things are becoming difficult, we see the murmuring that takes place. And we see the wrong conclusions that they arrive at. God has brought us out here to die. Uh, we see the self-pity. Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. It makes people forget the good things that God is doing. Have you ever been at that place in your own life? You know, they say, hey, we're, we're out here suffering. Things are happening. It would have been so much better if we were back in Egypt. Yeah, where we were slaves and beaten and taken advantage of. Oh, if we could only go back to Egypt. And this destructive disease of murmuring can cause us to abandon God's direction and purpose. Rather than going on to the promised land, to the blessings God has, you see that they say, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. As we look at what's happening in our passage here in Acts, we see many of these same things. The growth of the church is causing things to change. And, and that's hard for some. And it appears that some of what is causing the problem is not just, it's not really the surface issue that we're reading about, about the two groups of widows. There's, there's a deeper issue going on. Yes, there are needs that are not being met. And what's happening is we're told that there are Hellenistic and there are these uh, native Hebrew Jews. Have you ever seen these bumper stickers where somebody proudly puts on their pickup truck, uh, native Texan? And then you see, yeah, I heard some amens. And then you see the other bumper stickers that say, I wasn't born here, but I got here as fast as I could, right? This is, the, this is what we're dealing with here. Another amen. <laughs> this is what we're dealing with here. We have the native Hebrews, the native Texans, so to speak. They were born in the land. They, they are Jerusalemites. They, they have been there. And then you have the Hellenistic Jews, these Greek background Jews who have been coming from other parts of the world. They weren't born there, but they got there as fast as they could, so to speak. And Jerusalem, you'll recall, is the place where the temple was. This is where people, from, the Jews from all over the world would come back to worship. 
And what was happening is some of them were coming there, and as they were on these long journeys, uh, men were dying, and the women were left alone. Another thing that would often happen is that as the family got older, they would say, let's go to Jerusalem, because when we die, we want to be buried there. We want to be close to the temple. We want to be in this place. And so families would move there. And as the men would die off, uh, in some cases before the wives, the wives were left in a precarious position. Because you'll recall in the first century, women had no rights. They didn't have property rights. They didn't have legal standing. There were not the social systems like social security or welfare available. And this is why God's law says in the Old Testament that it is pure and undefiled religion to care for widows and orphans. It's God's law mandates that women are to be cared for, these, these uh, widows. James repeats this as well for us. And so what is happening is these were Jewish women who under the religious system of the day, the temple structure and the things that were happening should have been cared for. But remember, we're dealing with those who have become believers in Jesus Christ. And the Jewish leaders of the day were trying to kill off the church. So what they were saying is, well, you're apostate. You're, you're outside. You've abandoned the faith, so to speak. And so we have no need to care for you. And so these women were left with only one place to turn to for care, which was the body of Christ, the early church. And as they were being cared for, uh, there, there's obviously some problems in, in the system. Now, we're not told what is happening, but we can, we can imagine some problems. Uh, we don't read there was a Meals on Wheels program. And so uh, these women who maybe could have been older or infirm and unable to travel to the places where aid was provided are not being uh, taken care of. There was a language barrier. They were Hellenistic Jews. The, the language of the day was Aramaic. Aramaic was a kind of a Tex-Mex type of Hebrew. Uh, you had the Hebrew language that the Old Testament is written in, but the day-to-day -day discourse would take place in, in Aramaic. And so these Greek speakers uh, had a language barrier. They couldn't understand the announcements or read the things that said, go here to get help. And as this is all happening, I want you to notice in your passage, it doesn't appear to be a, a purposeful prejudicial issue. This isn't uh, what's taking place because we don't find God rebuking the church saying, what are y'all doing? We don't find a repentance of the people once the problem is being dealt with. So really what appears to be happening here is simply an organizational structure that is failing to keep place with the needs that are taking place. The growth of the church was actually the source of the problem. Remember those passages we opened this message with? The church would have been about 20,000 people at this point. The church has just had this astronomical multiplication of growth. And at the top of the org chart, so to speak, I mean, Christ is called the head of the church. He's the top. But under that, you had the 12 apostles who were appointed. Could these 12 leaders effectively know and minister to 20,000 people? No. Nor should they have been doing it all alone. The Bible tells us we are all as believers a part of the priesthood of believers. We all have a part in the ministry. So what is happening here is that the apostles are unable to care for the totality of the need. In a previous message, I talked about the law of the lid. And the law of the lid in organizational leadership is where uh, a, an organization can only grow to the capacity of the leader. Uh, and you can, you can truncate or stunt the growth of an organization if you're unwilling to allow others who have different gifts or abilities than the leader to, to, to grow it beyond them. And there's another principle we're all familiar with. It's called the bottleneck principle. And if you've ever tried to pour something out, you know how that narrow part of the bottle can clog something. And this is what's happening here. The, the church was set up where everything was being funneled through just this minor, small amount of, of leaders. And they needed to open up the funnel. They need to create a new structure. It's something we see happening in Exodus chapter 18. In Exodus 18, uh, there was a danger. You'll recall as the people were traveling through the wilderness to the promised land. Remember how they were grumbling and complaining? Well, in Exodus 18, 13, we find one of the reasons that people were complaining. There, Moses had a father-in-law by the name of Jethro. And he says in Exodus 18 and 17 through 22 this. He says, the thing that you are doing, he's talking to Moses, is not good. You will surely wear out both yourself and these people who are with you, for the task is too heavy for you. You cannot do it alone. 
Now listen to me. I will give you counsel and God be with you. You be the people's representative before God. And you bring the disputes to God and then teach them the statutes and the laws. And make known to them the way in which they are to walk and the work they are to do. Furthermore, you shall select out of all the people able men who fear God, men of truth, those who hate dishonest gain. And you shall place these over them as leaders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. Let them judge the people at all times. And let it be that every major dispute they will bring to you, but every minor dispute they themselves will judge. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. Now, Exodus 18.24 says that Moses implemented the system. He gave away the ministry to others. He removed the bottleneck. And so what we essentially have is the Jethro structure is something that is scalable. Now, these are the Roman numerals. M means 1,000, C is 100, L is 50, and X stands for 10. And so what you had was Moses, who was literally over millions and millions of people, And what he did was he implemented a structure where he took it down to the thousands. And he said, there will be these leaders who are in charge of groups of a thousand. And under that, each leader of a thousand will have hundreds. And under the hundreds, you'll have 50. So the the man uh, at that middle level would have two leaders under them. And that leader would have five leaders over groups of 10 under them. And if you're here and you're in an organization like, say, a a USAA here in San Antonio that has about, what, 14,000, 15,000 employees just here and about 40,000 worldwide, uh, you've got to scale up to that structure. If you're in a smaller organization, you can scale down. You can remove those top two layers and have 50 with 10s or even at the 10. It's part of what we do at Wayside. As a church grows larger, it has to grow smaller. Uh, the larger gathering is, is the worship. But then we have our mid-level groups called ABFs where we try to break the church down into smaller communities within the community so that you have people who know you personally, can minister to you personally. And then beyond the ABFs, we have the life groups, the small groups that meet out in homes. And so this is a way that we are implementing the Jethro structure. There are many needs in the church that get handled at a life group level or an adult Bible fellowship level that never come up. But then there are those needs that are so large or so involved or so major that they are moved immediately to the top from the lower levels. And this is what God has given us. He said, this is the structure in place. It is not the job of a person like the pastor to meet every single need individually. You cannot do that in a larger organization. And if you're a man or a woman leading an organization, a department, something in your own, own circle of influence outside of the church, you can take this same structure and implement it in your company or in what you're dealing with. Now, as we look at Acts chapter 6, verse 3, I want you to notice something about this. As Moses was told to appoint people, there were two things he was told. First of all, God didn't say, look, abdicate your responsibility. You know what abdication is? It's where you abandon it. It's different than delegating. Delegating is where you appoint another man or a woman for an area of responsibility, but you don't abandon them. What you do is you resource them, you stay connected, you train them, you empower them, and you say, what do you need? How can I support you? That's delegation. Moses wasn't told to abdicate and say, forget all the problems. Remember, he was still involved and people could come to him with needs. The second thing we see is Moses wasn't told, just put warm bodies in there. Have you ever been a part of an organization where people say, just fill a hole and it's okay? Uh, I've got a need, let's just put a person in there. And they're the square peg in the round hole or the reverse, and, and everybody suffers, right? As you looked at Exodus 18.21, God told Moses, you shall select out of the people able men who fear God, men of truth, those who hate dishonest gain. And as we look at Acts 6.3, you see the same thing. It says that, therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. Character counts. We live in a world that says, hey, character doesn't matter. And we see the consequences in our society, don't we? You look at politics, 
and you look at the, the men and women there who lack character in the way our country is suffering, you look at sports where you have a superstar that, that lacks the moral underpinnings and they become destructive to themselves, the team, and others. It happens in the entertainment industry. It happens in your uh, workplace where you serve in the military and in other places. Men and women, character counts. The world may tell us we can pass over this, that these things are not important, uh, but we all know what happens when we set aside character. Whenever we look for somebody here at Wayside Chapel to join our team, sometimes people say, Roger, how do y'all go about figuring out who's, who you're going to bring on the team? Pastors to serve, uh, support people to, to help in the areas of ministry. How do you raise up uh, elders? How do you raise up lay leaders in the various places of responsibility? Again, it's not about finding a warm body to fill a spot and just saying we're done. Uh, character counts. When we look for people in any position at Wayside, we use four C's. And I'm just going to share these with you so uh, you know what we do, and it may be something that you want to transfer into your own uh, sphere of influence. The first thing that we deal with is character, what I've already said. This is a non-negotiable. Now, God is in the business of changing lives. He's, he's a God of the second and the third and the 50th and the 500th chance if needed. But there are also times that you have to look at the person in their character, and especially in places of leadership, the scriptures are clear that there are qualifications where men and women can be disqualified for places of certain leadership if they have uh, blown it in some of these areas. And so character is a non-negotiable. If a person lacks it, it doesn't matter how gifted he or she may be, we take a pass. We move, we move beyond it. You can... Um, Look at the next one is competency. This is where most people go when they hire. They just say, okay, I have a need. Does the man or woman have the skill set to fill my need? And they bypass that first one. As I said, we start with character. If there is a failure there, we, we don't even move to the second stage. Now, when it comes to this area of competency, uh, we look to see, can they do the job? And there can be a sliding scale. There are some jobs that are so large so involved, so uh, intricate in the responsibilities or the oversight of the multiplicity that is going to be under it, that you can't take a person who is green in their ability and move them in. That's destructive to the person as well as to the organization. It's like saying, I'm going to go kayaking in a class four rapids and I've never been in a kayak once in my life. Well, the outcome is disastrous. Uh, if I don't drown, I'm certainly going to get hurt and everything else. And so you don't throw somebody into a rushing river and say, can you swim after they're thrown in the water? Uh, you determine whether they have the ability before they go in the water. Now, competency can be a sliding scale. Sometimes you can look at a person and you can say, this is a man or woman of great character, great ability, uh, raw gifts and, that have to be developed. And so you say, is there a way to stair-step the person into the position? Start them in a lower level of responsibility? The Bible says he who is faithful in a little will be faithful in much. And so sometimes what you do is you create a plan where you can take an individual and grow them into the higher levels of responsibility. Uh, many of you have been blessed by the ministry of Michael Loudermilk. He's one of our teaching pastors. And he is a young man in our church. He was a part of our church. He's at the Linger Conference in Dallas right now with about 40 or 50 of our singles. He was a high school football coach here in town. He was a part of Wayside. He was invested. And when Ikki Soma went to be pastor of City of Refuge in Houston, uh, we were looking for a man to fill our college and singles position. And Michael came to me one day and said, hey, can we have lunch? And he said, I don't have any seminary training I've never been involved in vocational ministry on and on. Well, I looked at this man and his character. I looked at his abilities, his leadership. I looked at this individual who was already involved in FCA and doing ministry in the schools with students and on and on. And he said, I feel that God has a call on my life. And I feel that I'm going to go into vocational ministry. And he said, am I even able to be considered for this position? And so several years ago, we brought Michael on our team. And we began working with, we said, these are some non-negotiables. You will go to seminary. And so he's been going to Dallas Theological Seminary through the extension program here in town. And we send him up to Dallas for the classes he has to take. And he's, he's nearing the completion of his degree. And we're going to have a wonderful day of ordination here when he finishes that. 
And he's been moving slowly into more and more and greater and greater areas of responsibility. He's a man with great character. He's a man with great uh, competency. And so we're seeing the benefit of God growing this person up. But he didn't start out day one stepping into the pulpit. He didn't start out day one. uh, And he said to me many times, I don't want your job, Roger. You know, I don't want to do all this stuff you're doing. But we're growing him up in those abilities. And so as you look at your organization, are there people within your organization that you can be growing and developing? Uh, Chemistry is the next C. Uh, Chemistry is where you say, how does this person click or connect in our culture, our context? Uh, How many of you think the San Antonio Spurs do a good job playing basketball? Amen. I got a bigger amen on that than anything this morning. (laughs) You know one of the things the Spurs do? They say, I don't care if you are the superstar of superstars. If you're going to come in and blow up the team because you're a prima donna or you can't work within our team system, we pass. And we do the same thing at Wayside. Uh, We don't look for superstars. We look for servant leaders. Jesus Christ told the disciples, your job is not to be the greatest of the great. Your job is to take up a towel and serve. Your job is to be a servant leader. And I tell uh, those that we hire here, whether you are in a pastoral teaching position or you're in a custodial position, I call them the ministers of first impression at Wayside because they set the tone for everything. If you walk in here and the building is dirty, the bathrooms are not clean, things are neglected, you're not going to be ready to hear the word of God. And so there are ministers of first impression, and they are as important to this team as the person on the platform is. And I tell those that I hire, if you're too, too big to help set up tables and take out the trash and do things, then keep going because you're not going to fit our team. You're not going to fit our culture. And so chemistry is very important. You say, how do they work within our structure? If they're going to blow up your team, then men and women, it's better to take a pass on them in your organization. Uh, You have to look at how do they click with the rest of your team, and then you say, how do they connect with the congregation? Somebody may be very gifted, but the cultural context is so diverse that they're not able to effectively fit your organization or your ministry. The next thing we look at is the context. And the context is a lot like the one I just talked about. This is where somebody could have been great somewhere else, but they don't fit where we are. And so it's not just us. Harvard Business School did a study, and they they studied superstars that left one organization and went to another, and they found that often that person uh, went down in their effectiveness because the team around them or the culture or something was so different. Uh, It wasn't a readily transferable skill. So one of the advantages of promoting from within your organization is that people already know your DNA. Uh, When we brought Michael Loudermilk on our team, he's a young man who had been a part of our church for years. And he said, I'm here because I love Wayside. I love the vision. I love the values. I believe in what this church is doing. So there was no need to transfer DNA into him. He already got it. Now, that doesn't mean that you limit and never bring somebody in from the outside. Stephen Lay is our men's pastor that we brought on about a year ago. He's from Tennessee. Have you noticed his accent? Yeah. He likes to tell us he's from the real UT, you know, not the Longhorns. We tell him he's colorblind because he has a different orange and white than we have for the burnt orange and white. And the Aggies are going, you're all wrong. Uh, but he's, he's, he was somebody we brought in from the outside. So we don't limit that. There is, there is great health and b- diversity. When you bring in people from the outside, sometimes you bring in ideas, best practices, ways of doing things. So I'm not telling you to exclude anybody from outside. But when you promote from within, it does a number of things, including uh, tell those on your team that we believe in you and there there is an ability to move up in the organization. You don't raise up your best people and then watch them fly. You've heard me talk about letting young eagles fly within an organization. And so as you look at what you're doing, uh, these are things. Now, if you're sitting here saying, Roger, this has kind of turned into a leadership seminar, and I thought we were preaching the Word of God. We are. Because as we're looking at what is happening here, you see all of these things happening. 
You see Moses being told, check the character of the people. Find those who are competent in what they can do. Find those who maybe chemistry wasn't given as much, but context is certainly what we see happening here in Acts. Let me just talk for a moment more about this idea of context. And, and part of what we're seeing in Acts 6, there's this diversity taking place, remember? You have the, the Greek-speaking people coming in who are mixing with the, the Hebrew speakers. You have the, the Gentiles that are going to be coming in later in the book of Acts, and you find everything changing. Do you realize that Wayside Chapel is a diverse organization? Have you ever looked around on a Sunday? Did you look at the choir when they were up here singing? Wasn't it wonderful to see the different ethnicities, the different backgrounds, the different ages? And it's the same thing as you look around at our church. I love going to the new members classes and looking at who the people are who are visiting and joining Wayside and saying, this is a church I want to become a part of. And I see singles and seniors. I see families and I see couples without kids. I see individuals that are different backgrounds, not just in terms of do they come from Tennessee and Texas. Uh, we're a church filled with different geographical people. We're a church filled with multiple countries. Multiple languages are here at Wayside. And then beyond that, you look at the economic backgrounds. Some are uh, day laborers and others are uh, CEOs of organizations and everywhere in between. You know what the biggest challenge is at Wayside Chapel? It's not different races or economic backgrounds. It's the different generations. You may not realize this, but at Wayside Chapel, we have five different generations. Five different generations. We have what has been termed the greatest generation, the builders. And then below that, you, you have uh, the boomers. And then right below that are the Xers. Uh, that was about 1965 is where that generational break happened. And then below the generation X, you have the Ys or the millennials. And then the 14 and unders are, you know, they haven't figured out what to label them yet. They've been called the iGen, the Zers, the plurals, the post-millennials. Uh, but they're here. And sometimes you'll hear people say, well, you know, the kids are the future of the church. No, brothers and sisters, they are the church. They're the church today. They're not only a vibrant part of our church, they're, they're a vibrant part of serving. You know, one of the highlights of the year, I think, at, at Wayside Chapel is Vacation Bible School. And the reason I say that is because not only are we reaching more than 500 kids in our church and community with the good news of the gospel, but I get to watch all five generations serve together. There, there is great fun and diversity to watch builders in with the plurals, the zeers, the whatever you want to call them. And they're not just running around eating the snacks. I mean, they're, they're vitally serving. Hundreds of people are serving during that week. I talked about our team and the chemistry. We have great complexity here. Uh, we have three of the five generations represented on our team. We did have four up until just recently when one retired. And if you've ever sat in an organizational meeting, believe me, the builders operate differently than the millennials and everybody in between. And there's challenge in trying to work together, but there's blessing in bringing the diversity of ideas and, and the, the ways that things are changed and as we look at what is happening here in Acts chapter 6, these different groups are coming together. And as they're chosen, they choose men of godly character as well as those who fit the context. You see, the requirement that they looked for is they said, okay, we have a problem. We have the Greek-speaking widows who are not being reached. So what did they do? Go out and get a bunch of Hebrew men to fill the slot? Did you notice the names that were read? They're all Greek. They're all Greek-speaking names. They're not native Hebrews. Uh, in fact, the last guy that's mentioned, uh, Nicholas, isn't even a Jew. He, he's called a proselyte. He was a convert to Judaism and then to Christianity. This wasn't about simply filling a, a quota based on race, because remember, we saw the characteristics. They started with the character and whether they had the ability. Now, you'll notice that they're referred to as the seven, Many people read this passage and they think this is the establishment of the office, the office of deacons that you find mentioned in Philippians 1.1 when it says the elders and deacons were there. Uh, but this doesn't appear to be the formal establishment of the office of deacons. Now the word is used, 
The word's used a couple times. In Acts 6.1, the Greek noun diakonos is used, which means a servant. And in Acts 6.2, you find the verb to serve, diakonon, or diakoneo. And so the reason is because this is what these men were doing. They were being servants. The word deacon and diakonos is used all throughout the New Testament for all of us as Christians, and it means to be servants. And this is what they were doing. They had that servant-hearted attitude where they weren't uh, unwilling to, to get down in the dirt and do what was needed. Now, I want you to notice it's not the apostles said they were too good to get their hands dirty. What they did was they rightly said, God has given us a different responsibility of feeding. It's feeding the flock with the word of God, not getting down and dealing with the, the daily uh, physical needs of the ministry. In 1 Corinthians 12, the Bible uses the illustration of the church being like a human body, which is made up of many different parts. It says in 1 Corinthians 12, 14 through 18, For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. You see, every part of the body is essential. I saw that again firsthand last week. Uh, I wasn't up here preaching, but I was on the property, and I was all around the property. In preparation for this message, I wanted to see once again firsthand our happy headaches. So I put on my tennis shoes, my blue jeans, and I walked around the property. And as I did so, I stopped at several places. Some of you saw me at the door, and I heard, boy, he must have had some bad sermons to get demoted to the door. I said, actually, this is a promotion. I kind of like it here. So I was greeting people as they came in for a while, then I walked around to some of the adult Bible fellowships, and I saw great teachers who were teaching the Word of God, feeding the people in those adult Bible fellowship contexts. And while I was there, I heard, hey, uh, one of the young moms came into one of our young marriage classes, and she's holding her baby. She told her husband, uh, my son's class says they need helpers. I, you know, I'm going to go over there and handed the baby off. So I went over to the children's building, and I went in there, and I got to serve in the kids' ministry. And so I filled one of the spots, and I had snack time and play time. <laughs> and, and again, I watched great teachers. Uh, Kay and Kyler was teaching a story with great, you know, passion, and the kids were all, you know, locked in, and then there were those who had music abilities, and they were sharing that as we had a uh, song, and so I, I got to serve in the children's ministry, and then I went out, and I walked around the parking lot, and you've seen our faithful servants who are, you know, flagging cars in, and, you know, I want to commend you all for your creative parking. Uh, I took a lot of pictures of uh, cars. I won't show them. Don't worry. You're going, oh, no. <laughs> But I did have two people confess to me, oh, pastor, I parked on the stripes or I'm over here. And, you know, I didn't know if they needed a special dispensation for that. But, um, you know, cars were everywhere. <clears throat> I rode our shuttle. Our shuttle lot was full. Uh, and then I came and I stood outside. And in the course of 15 minutes, I watched six cars circle our parking lot and get on the service road and get back on the freeway and leave. Because I said, I just can't get in. And... I already mentioned to you that the last couple of Sundays, we've actually had to turn people away at the door of the church. The sanctuary is full. Uh, the lounge area is full. The welcome center, people are watching the service. Some are going over to Hebrews. And what is happening is we, we are full and overflowing. And they're happy headaches. They're good problems to have. But bricks and mortar are blocking the mission of the church because we're full. Now, the leadership isn't burying our heads in the sand. We've actually been dealing with this for years. You know, we've opened up and knocked out every wall we can think of around here. We've done all the things that we can figure out. Uh, and we're still looking at ways to do it. We're studying three different things. One of those is uh, people say, well, why don't we go back to another service? We've actually test run a third service several times. And what we found is uh, it doesn't get fully subscribed and attended that the hour that people want to worship most is around that 10.30 to 11.30 hour. And so we've said, do we adjust our times down? Do we, well, we have a wonderful group called Adult Bible Fellowships. 
And if we look at that, there are already two that meet at 8 a.m. in the morning. And some of you are going, not me, I know, it's not you, but there are some. So we said, do we stair-step everybody down? What do we do? Or do we end ABFs? And before you start throwing things, we're not. Uh, but so what happens is we can't, we can't adjust that. The only thing we can do is add later. And again, as I've said, we've already test run services uh, in the evening. We had, a, we had a 10 year run with a Saturday service, which was a wonderful thing, but there were only about 120 people in there. And that's the size of the average church in America. I'm not saying that's not great. But the amount of wear and tear on the team and the other things that were happening, uh, when you looked at the, the return, and the, it, it just is something we said, do we go to a Sunday night service instead of Saturday night? And that has a lot of challenges. Uh, we're looking at multi-siting, which I'll talk about in a moment. But one of the solutions that we found is right here in this room. Uh, you, you all know that we renovated this sanctuary several years ago. And we, we have been doing parts since then. And one of the things, those of you up in the balcony, you're safe, don't worry. But the balcony flooring needs to be replaced up there. It's, it's at a point where uh, there are areas that are soft. The decking is, is only half an inch where it could be more. Again, you're safe. Don't evacuate the balcony. Uh, we've had architects look at that and say, what do we need to do up there? And so we're, we're about to have to renovate the entire balcony. And so as we were going to have to take everything out, replace the flooring, do the other things that were going there, we said, what can we do? Let's be creative. Let's think outside the box. And so we looked at what if we put stadium uh, theater type of seating in? Uh, this is what I'm talking about, these kind of chairs. You've seen it in other churches and things. And what we found is we could gain seats in the balcony, a uh, number of seats, almost 50 seats in the balcony alone. And so we said, okay, what if we were to come down here onto the floor level and we were to do that as well? And some of you are grabbing the pews right now saying, <laughs> you're going to take my pew. Uh, you can take it with you in a moment. I'll tell you about that. <laughs> so what we looked at is what could we do in here? This is a, a drawing. I know it's small, but it's just for discussion purposes. And as you look at this, uh, by adding, by changing the configuration and going to stadium seating, we can put 270 more seats in this sanctuary. 270 seats. Is that worth doing? Is that worth turning people away at the doors? Or is there a way that we can do something different? Now, it will require change. And Mark Twain said, the only one who likes change is a baby with a dirty diaper. And I get that. And we're going to make a mess while we're doing it, but y'all who were here have already walked through the mess of renovating this entire sanctuary. Now you're looking at this and immediately some of you are saying, well, my seat is gone. Here, here's the good news. Everybody will get a new seat and everybody will make new friends. So this, this is something we all get to participate in. And you're saying, you can, no, you're not going to have your name on it. I'll talk about that in a minute. Some of you are saying, but Roger, where's the center row? It only goes halfway up. What about weddings? Well, we do a lot of weddings at Wayside. That's one of the blessings of all the singles and young families that are coming. Uh, we've done one wedding in the sanctuary in the last year. Most people are outside of the sanctuary getting married. And of those that do, I've done many weddings in different churches that don't have a center aisle. You'll notice this is here anyway. The bride and groom can't come up. They go around to the side already. Uh, so it's not essential to have a full center aisle. And what happens, you may not get it, but those of you who are on the ends know you're kind of doing this to, to look at the service. You'll notice all the seats are going to be turned in to the, the center. Um, what else can I tell you about this? 270 more people getting in. And some of you are saying, but Roger, you already said the parking lot's full. Well, it is. And what we're doing is we're already looking at places for a second shuttle lot. We're talking to different places about leasing their parking lots on Sunday. So that is already underway. The children's building is already full. And some of you are saying, what about that? We've already worked on a plan on what we would do there in order to move rooms around, to uh, close down the first floor resource room and uh, turn that into another nursery area. We've had 65 babies over in the children's building on some Sundays. So again, y'all don't know that when you're sitting in here. Uh, Wayside is exploding. 
And uh, if God continues to bless us, it's just going to do more and more. So what if we fill in the sanctuary? What if we do this and we add 270 seats? God can and probably will, we're praying, fill that in too. So this is just a first step uh, in what we could do. Now, some of you are going, okay, what's it going to cost? Well, it's going to cost about $200 per seat. There's going to be about 1,200 seats in here when we're done. And so if you want to sit there and do the math, that's going to be uh, over $250,000 for the chairs, and there's going to be some additional work that needs to be done. We're going to fix the railing in the balcony with uh, some, you know, glass and things so things don't fall on some of you below as has happened. Um, So what, what does it mean for you? A couple things. First and foremost, pray. Pray for us. Because with change comes turmoil. Do you remember what's happening in Acts 6? The church is at war with each other because there's change. And it's not just the groups, it's the structures changing. Second, we need you to be involved. Uh, We need you to be involved in giving financially. Many of you gave sacrificially to help this renovation and the children's renovations and the new parking and everything. And if you're sitting there saying, okay, $200, I can buy a seat for myself. Now, I told you your name's not going to be on it. Okay, it's not your seat. Uh, But consider giving what would be needed to cover uh, your seat. And then say, do I want to help reach someone else? Maybe buy another seat for someone. Uh, And then beyond that, some of you may say, Roger, I'm going to struggle to do even one. And that's, we're not asking you uh, to say this is fair share, everybody buys a seat. That's not what this is about. This is about us working together as a congregation to say, how can we keep bricks and mortar from blocking the mission of the church? Uh, There's a man who's home with the Lord, Walt Walt Olson. Many of you knew Brother Walt. And I'll tell his story now because he's home with Jesus. Uh, When we were doing the last renovation, he was one of our senior saints. And Walt came to me and and he said, "Uh, Roger, tell me about this welcome center you're wanting to put in. And we talked about it, and he said, look, I want to anonymously give a gift to cover the Welcome Center. This was one of our oldest members at the time. And Walt said this to me. He said, I want the young people to feel welcome in this church. I want the young people to be welcome in our church. So I know the change is going to be hard for some. uh, But Walt was one of those men who's now with the Lord who said, I want to see Wayside be what it is today. And he was... He was willing to step up and be a part of that and put aside his preferences to say, how do we reach others? Some of you will be able to give to buy an entire row uh, if that's what God leads you to do. But this is something we want to do. Now, we have resources in hand, but we're holding some of those resources. As you know, we've been putting in the budget for multi-siding. Multi-siding is where we would open another uh, church off this property. And the reason for that is as we do so, we'll take a portion of our current congregation and we will lift them out and move them to another location. That will not only create capacity within our current property, but it will also be missional. It will be missional because we will be reaching another part of the city where non-churched or de-churched people are not willing to drive here to 1705 Northwest Loop 410, but they will drive to something closer. And so pray with us in that area as well that God would open the right venue for us. We've been looking for over a year, working with people to identify a location, to add a satellite location. These are exciting things that God is doing in our church. God is at work in ways that is growing and multiplying the gospel. Uh, I know my time is over, but I just want to share a story from last week. Uh, You know that we had our missions conference. And in the missions conference, we had... We had uh, two men who were sharing. Uh, You'll remember we had an Israeli believer and an Arab believer here from Israel. And one of those men, uh, Carlos Damianos, went from here to Houston. And while he was there, he had a friend of his uh, named Amir who was translating for him. Now, Amir, if you heard his testimony, Carlos had been in the drug thing and he, you know, was not a good man before he came to the Lord. And Amir is one of the people, he got into the drug culture. And Amir over in Houston uh, agreed to translate for Carlos while he was there. And Amir is working for a Jewish man who was his boss. And when he talked to his boss about this, the guy said, well, I want to know, I want to meet this man, Carlos, you're talking about. Because he went online, he watched his testimony, 
And the short story is in the end, uh, this Jewish boss came to Christ through this Arab believer and Amir, who was this other Arab who was translating, also came to Christ. <laughs> Praise God for that. And so this is an example of the power of the gospel to change lives as it goes out of here. I want you to notice as we come to the end here in Acts chapter 6-7, it says what? The priest, the Jewish priest were coming to faith. You remember the people who were trying to kill the church, who, were a, who said crucify Christ, who were in opposition? They are coming to faith. They are becoming a part of the church. And this is about Wayside Chapel saying, how do we allow God to do things we cannot even imagine in ways we've never done before? You'll notice in the passage it says that the leadership came to the people with solutions. And they, they agreed with it and they became a part of it. And in a few weeks, we're going to have a congregational vote about renovating the sanctuary because the expenditure will exceed that $100,000. And so the congregation will need to approve this. But as a leadership, we believe it is worth doing. And like I said, we need you to be a part of it through prayer, through giving of your gifts, and being a part of the change that God is doing in and through our church. Will you join me, please, as we go to the Lord and close in prayer? Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the story of life change and for exciting things that you do in and through your church, through us, your people. Father, you tell us in Proverbs 16, 9, that the mind of man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. Father, we've made plans. We're not asking you to rubber stamp them. We're asking you to direct them. So if there are things we've not thought through, things that need to be changed, things that are not within your will, then we pray you would block them and you would change that. But Father, I thank you that we are a church that is willing not to be set in our ways, but to say we want to find a way to talk about the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ. So thank you, God, for letting us be a part of your work and what you're doing. We commit ourselves to you and ask that you'd lead and guide us in Jesus' name. Amen. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.